purely defensive uses were not what the agency was limited to in any way. There were definite offensive uses. In fact, there were dark guns. You mentioned suicide. Well, I, I, I don't think that the suicide is usually accomplished with a dart. There's no question about it. It was also for offensive reasons. No question. Isn't it true, too, that um, the effort not only involved designing a gun that could strike a, a human target without knowledge of the person who'd been struck, but also the toxin itself would not appear in the autopsy? Yes, so that uh, there was no, no way of perceiving that the, uh, the target was hit. As a murder instrument, that's about as efficient as you can get, isn't it? What you just heard was testimony from a 1975 Senate Select Committee, chaired by Idaho Senator Frank Church, meant to investigate widespread abuses by American intelligence. The two men speaking are Senator Church and William Colby, the director of the CIA from 1973 to 1976, after which he was replaced by George H.W. Bush. In this particular recording, Colby is describing the CIA's heart attack gun, an electrically powered Colt 45 that can silently fire darts that will go entirely unnoticed by the target. The poison in them won't kill instantly, but three days later caused the symptoms of a heart attack culminating in cardiac arrest. If an autopsy was performed, the poison left no trace. It was a perfectly invisible killer. Now, the fact that something like this existed 45 years ago, to me, is absolutely terrifying. So this week, I'm going to be talking about extrajudicial assassinations, black bag operations, domestic surveillance, and the church committee. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 72, Take Me to Church. Hidden History is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show, and if you like what I do, then subscribe to the show on Spotify, review it on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter, at H-I-D-D-N-HistoryPod. So, if you're a long-time listener to the show, then you know that when it comes to mid-century politics, I really like to talk about Nixon. And as you might be able to tell from that lead, this week is no exception. As a matter of fact, even though the Church Committee, formerly known as the United States Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, even though it took place in 1975, after his resignation, Nixon is actually entirely to blame for its creation. So, Let's get into it. The Church Committee was created in response to a number of illegal domestic surveillance operations that came to light as a result of the 1973 Watergate investigation. And yes, you all know the broad strokes about Watergate. But, as is true with most things, there's more to it than meets the eye. So now, if you'll indulge me for just a moment... It's time for me to talk about four things. The White House Horrors, the Houston Plan, Operation Sandwedge, and Operation Gemstone. So, 
Let's start with the one that's the widest in scope, the White House Horrors. Now, the horrors were a series of events brought under one name used to describe the scope of Nixon's criminality. Now, some of the crimes in the horrors are relatively public knowledge, like the creation of the White House plumbers and the break-in at the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist. Some of them aren't so well known, like a proposal put forth by Chuck Colson, Nixon's special counsel, that they firebomb the Brookings Institution, a neoliberal Washington think tank, in order to destroy sensitive documents. Also included in the horrors were things like the use of IRS auditing as a political weapon and the creation of false documents that implicated JFK in the assassination of the South Vietnamese president. So obviously, not super great stuff. The White House horrors is, like I said earlier, the umbrella term, and included under it are Operations Sandwich and Gemstone. So, what exactly were they? Well, Sandwedge was a typical mass surveillance and infiltration operation. It involved watching Nixon's political enemies around the clock to collect dirt on everything from their finances to their sexual habits. But outside of that kind of run-of-the-mill despicable stuff, it got a lot darker. Part of Sandwedge was the infiltration of the presidential campaign and the office of Democratic Senator Edmund Muskie, which resulted in Nixon's agents forging a letter claiming that Muskie discriminated against French Canadians? The so-called Canuck letter, though very low quality in terms of the forgery, was shocking enough to the American public to cause the downfall of Muskie's campaign, who, at that point, was the front-runner for the 1972 Democratic nomination. But still, compared to some of the monstrous ways current campaigns behave, to us as a modern audience, maybe a letter about French Canadians isn't as impactful as it was in the 70s. And to that I say, don't worry, it gets worse. Eventually, oversight of Operation Sandwedge was passed to G. Gordon Liddy, whose only claim to fame is being the Daddy G, referenced in Steely Dan's My Old School, and absolutely nothing else. Uh, and so, Daddy G decides that Sandwedge maybe isn't where it's at, and it's time to move on to bigger and better things. Operation Gemstone. Now, um, from a legal perspective, thankfully the worst parts of Gemstone were not executed. But from a historical one, even though the worst things stayed on paper, the fact that they were proposed, accepted, and funded speaks not only to the sheer criminality of the Nixon administration, but also to the failings of a system that could allow such a thing to happen in the first place. Right, so what exactly was it? Well, like Sandwedge, it was a weapon to use against the Democrats, but not in a passive sense. This wasn't just simple wiretapping. It was a two-pronged operation meant to both disrupt the Democratic National Convention and defend the Republican National Convention. On the Democratic side, that meant deploying agents to spread rumors, start protests, manufacture fake attacks between the candidates, and embarrass party officials. On the Republican side, and this is where it gets pretty bad, it meant targeting radical leaders who were likely to protest the convention 
and kidnapping them, holding them in Mexico until the convention was over. Now, the kidnapping part of Gemstone didn't come to pass, but not out of some moral opposition, but rather because Attorney General John Mitchell thought that it would cost too much. The break-in at the Watergate Hotel, which is, you know, usually considered the defining part of Watergate, was actually a part of Operation Gemstone. Liddy faced severe criticism from his co-conspirators, saying that if he hadn't cancelled Sandwedge, then none of them ever would have gotten caught. If you want to talk about facing justice for these crimes, Liddy, who was instrumental in organizing most of them, only served a brief prison stint for the Watergate break-in. After his release, his image was immediately rehabilitated, and he made appearances on everything from Fear Factor to WrestleMania to Miami Vice and Encyclopedia Brown. He actually has 61 credits on his IMDb page. I mean, personally, for me, having to go on the Howard Stern show seems like punishment enough. But there is one more part to the White House horrors that I need to discuss. And this is the one that directly resulted in the Church Committee's formation. And that is the Houston Plan. The Houston Plan was first assembled in 1970 by Nixon aide Tom Houston. And, like the other operations, it called for extensive domestic surveillance, this time on left-wing groups and those opposed to the Vietnam War. It called for illegal wiretapping and breaking and entering, but the crown jewel of the Houston plan involved rounding up anti-war protesters and political quote-unquote radicals and sending them to secret detention camps on remote tracts of government land in the western United States. That's pretty horrifying. But what's worse is that it was ratified by Nixon and then sent out to the heads of the FBI, CIA, DIA, and NSA, and they all accepted the plan except for J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI. Once again, Hoover didn't do this out of a moral opposition. J. Edgar Hoover was an absolute monster, and maybe I'll do an episode soon on the breadth of his crimes. But the only reason Hoover opposed it was because he thought it was so large in scope that the conspiracy would surely be uncovered. Of course, that didn't prevent the FBI from adopting some measures of the Houston plan, principally removing all age restrictions from the informants the FBI maintained on college campuses across the country. Ultimately, though, Hoover was correct. The Houston plan came to light during the Watergate investigations of 1973. All of a sudden, the American public was made aware that the government had been listening to their phone calls, bugging their houses, and reading their mail. In terms of the scope and meaning of the revelation, the closest thing in recent history would be Edward Snowden's whistleblowing on the NSA's PRISM mass surveillance program. So, Along comes 1975, and the Senate Church Committee, as well as its House counterpart, the Pike Committee, began to investigate the widespread abuses conducted by American intelligence agencies. Ultimately, the reports produced by the Pike Committee were blocked from publication by the Ford administration, 
because the Pike Committee found that these violations emanated from the office of the president. The Church Committee laid the bulk of their blame on the CIA, and as a result, they were permitted to release their findings. Ultimately, copies of the Pike Committee reports were leaked to the press and published abroad. And so thankfully, I've been able to include links in the description of this episode to the full reports from both the Pike and Church Committees. There is an incredible amount of information in them that I am not going to have the time to cover here. But if you want to read about the extensive history of American domestic surveillance, extrajudicial assassination, and human rights abuses by the intelligence community, then I would strongly suggest that you give them a read. I mean, cumulatively, these reports are many thousands of pages long, so maybe... maybe skim. But anyway, what are some of the things in these reports? Well, there's a lot of illegal assassinations, uh, with the development of things like the heart attack gun you heard at the beginning of this episode, scores of people like Fidel Castro and Patrice Lumumba, the democratically elected prime minister of the newly independent Congo, were all on the CIA's hit list. It's worth noting that the CIA successfully got to Lumumba, an anti-imperialist and pan-African politician who was deposed by an American-backed dictator and assassinated via firing squad on January 17, 1961, at which point he was dismembered and dissolved in sulfuric acid, his bones ground to dust and scattered on the ground. The shining new hope for a young nation had been disappeared without a trace. The committees also uncovered the widespread wiretapping of everyone from private citizens to journalists to Supreme Court justices. Nobody was beyond the reach of the totalitarian arm of American intelligence. One of the findings that has stayed in our collective memory the longest was the revelation that American intelligence agencies actively targeted civil rights leaders with Hoover's FBI infamously wiretapping the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., sending him forged letters urging him to kill himself. Though the Senate and House committees came in 1975, the first half of the 70s were ripe with shocking discoveries about the criminality of our own government. In January 1970, former captain of Army Intelligence Christopher Pyle testified that the Army had 1,500 plainclothes agents monitoring every protest in the United States with more than 20 people. On March 8, 1971, a group that called themselves the Citizens' Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into an office building in Media, Pennsylvania, and discovered hundreds of documents revealing that the FBI had been spying on left groups and using postal workers and switchboard operators to spy on black student groups at colleges across America. The Citizens' Commission had inadvertently found papers documenting the existence and practice of COINTELPRO, a sprawling counterintelligence program aimed at the New Left, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Women's Liberation Movement, meant to disrupt and destroy each of them, with tactics ranging from wiretapping to assassination. I actually talked about a victim of COINTELPRO 
two weeks ago in episode 70. Fred Hampton was murdered by the FBI in his sleep on December 4th, 1969, for his role as a community organizer and member of the Black Panther Party. In 1974, investigative journalist Seymour Hersh uncovered what the CIA called their family jewels, hundreds of pages of operations and actions that they conducted with the full knowledge of their outright illegality and immorality. Included in the family jewels were things like Operation Mockingbird, which was a massive effort by the CIA to turn American media into a propaganda machine by providing direct funding to media outlets and journalists that they could influence. There was also MKUltra, which I'm sure you all know about. The non-consensual experimentation on the American public with psychoactive substances. Though the jewels were first discovered in the 1970s, documentation that gave us a better picture of the nature of these human rights violations was only released in 2007. And the thing about it is, it's all heavily redacted. There is still one member of the family jewels that is entirely redacted. Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? The things that they have allowed us to know are so shocking and so deeply, deeply disturbing that in other countries it would have started an insurrection. If what we're allowed to know is already the stuff of paranoia-induced nightmares, then what could they still be hiding? The thing that really gets me is that the CIA and the FBI and the NSA had these incredibly massive and sophisticated domestic spying and political assassination networks 45 years ago. They had them before their budgets were uncoupled from reality, before the computing revolution, before the Patriot Act. Going back to the beginning of this episode, you know, if we're just talking about the heart attack gun, almost half a century ago, the CIA openly admitted that it had a handheld weapon that could kill with an invisible poison without the target even knowing they were the target. If they're open about that in 1975, then what were they private about? If that technology existed in 1975 then what unfathomable tools of misery and oppression do they have the capacity to produce today? So all of this really begets the old question of who watches the watchman. And it turns out, when there's power to be gained, a grip to be solidified, it's nobody. The secretive nature of our government means that they can essentially do whatever they want to us. They can listen to our phone calls, read our mail and our search history. They can kill us and they can imprison us. All for the crime of believing in a better future. It turns out it's a big club and we're not in it. If you enjoyed this episode, well, you're probably on a list now. But 
I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and follow the show on Twitter at H-I-D-D-N History Pod. Thank you very much for listening this week. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.